Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, what's up, what's up? It's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. This is just going to be a solo cast, probably about half hour, hour, I don't know, maybe we'll break it into a few segments. Uh, But these are kind of just three thoughts coming at you in May of 2021. And the first thought we should talk about is being fat. Being fat, right? Uh, A lot of fat people in America. I am about 25 pounds overweight, carrying a little bit too much right here in the midsection, working on that, going to jujitsu a lot, trying to eat a little bit better. The uh, the Modelo beer, which uh, I tend to have after jujitsu and the cigar and the overeating of sushi probably doesn't help. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, we're good, right? Uh, I come from a family of uh, obese people on my father's side of the family. So when I refer to fat Americans, I'm definitely projecting and talking about myself uh, or including myself. I'm definitely including a lot of people uh, in my family, and I'm definitely including a lot of people who uh, who I know, right, and, and who I've been friends with and who I care about and who I love and who I wish were healthier or I've talked to about being healthier. And the interesting thing was uh, a friend or I guess a former friend of mine now uh, who is diametrically opposed to me on basically all things political, but we've had some great conversations. I've been a guest on his podcast. We've had some great friendly banter back and forth on Facebook. Uh, he, He posted something online of course, on Facebook, where all ideas go to die. And uh, he had posted that, hey, rolled up to McDonald's, line out the door, went to Wendy's and El Pollo Loco, same thing there. And I'm not even mad because, you know, everybody deserves a living wage. So I understand why nobody wants to work at these fast food joints. And there was a lot of discussion and argument back and forth between a living wage and a minimum wage and why people really aren't working. And we actually talked about this on on here before on that, you know, it's hard to people to get people to go back to work when either A, their, their kids are stuck at home because the schools won't open. Thank you, COVID. Thank you, bad government decisions. Um, or they're getting paid more for staying at home on unemployment than they would be for being a productive member of society and having a job. So anyway, there's some discussion on that. But at one point, uh, one of a mutual friend of ours chimed in and said, hey, the real question is here, why are you eating at McDonald's, man? That stuff's so unhealthy for you, like not good for your heart. Like don't eat that fast food shit. And I made some offhanded comment. I'm like, yeah, you know, if us Americans, and I put it in parentheses, I include me in this statement, weren't so morbidly obese, uh, COVID would have been a blip on the radar. Because if you look at, you know, sadly, we're over half a million deaths now with COVID. If you look at the comorbidities of people who got infected and became symptomatic and ended up dying with or from COVID, depending on how you want to classify that, the three top comorbidities, I believe, were diabetes, uh, obesity, and respiratory or health problems usually accompanied by being obese, right? So, uh, you know, if you listen to any other podcaster kind of on the more conservative libertarian space, whether that's Joe Rogan, whether that's a primal diet, whether that's a bunch of doctors that have been trying to speak out, you know, if Americans were more healthy, if we weren't all carrying around a bunch of extra fat and we were actually getting, I don't know what the vitamins are, B and D and D12 and B this and C that, you know, if we were a little bit more healthy and weren't destroying our own bodies, there wouldn't have been nearly as many COVID deaths. That's that's just that's just science. It's follow the science, right? And so I I mentioned this, and I'm like I'm like, hey, you know, us fat Americans, blah 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 blah. And I made some offhanded comments about how um, there wouldn't have been as many COVID deaths, and you know, healthcare would probably be cheaper if every American just lost 20 pounds. Uh, well, not every American, but lots of Americans. If we lost 20 pounds, our healthcare would probably be cheaper. And oh boy, did I sh- set off a shitstorm. 
Uh, and a bunch of people started commenting and attacking me and telling me how we have to have universal health care and we have to have this and you don't understand the problem and all the same people would have died of COVID. And, and then somebody chimed in, you know, in the comment section, you can't really see their avatar picture so well. And she was kind of master. She had some avatar up of herself started chiming in saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I've worked in the medical field. You know, being fat isn't unhealthy. It's all about your blood work. There's plenty of skinny people that are unhealthy and fat people are just as healthy as skinny people. And I'm like, look, we can argue about anything you want, politics, economics, uh, living wage, universal health care, response to COVID, but you are not in any way going to, is it called gas lamping, Chris, or gaslighting? Like when you're trying to trick somebody into thinking something you know isn't true. You gotta look this up. Gaslighting, yeah. I'm like, you're not going to gaslight me into saying or admitting or feeling guilty about saying that being fat isn't unhealthy. Being fat is, is, is unhealthy. You're not gonna convince me otherwise. And she said something else, and I'm like, hey, but, you know, I'm sorry, you're just you're just wrong here. You can look up the um, American Heart Association. You can look up the CDC. You can look up, I, I don't know, you can call your doctor and see if, like, being fat or morbidly obese is less healthy than being skinny. And it's just a fact. I know this because I've been on cholesterol medicine since I was about 23. My family has horrendous, horrendous heart issues, health issues. You know, my father, by the time he was... I think 45 or 46, he had already had a heart attack or two, a stroke, quadruple bypass. And I remember the doctor uh, who was attending to him when he had the quadruple bypass kind of pulled me aside because uh, we had a family friend that worked in the hospital and was the head of cardiology. And he said, hey man, like your dad has done a lot of the wrong things. You know, he was a smoker, he was overweight, you know, didn't really take care of himself, hasn't exercised as much as he had. But the amount of damage in his heart um, could not have happened if if he wasn't already genetically predispositioned to all of these problems with arteries and cholesterol and plaque and all this stuff. So he's like, hey man, you really gotta be careful about yourself. And I, I haven't done as good of a job as I should, but I go to a cardiologist who I pay cash out of my pocket for once a year. Um, you know, I've been on cholesterol medicine, like I said, since I was 22. I get blood tests every six to 12 months to check all my levels and make sure I'm not becoming pre-diabetic. And so like this this topic is pretty near and dear to my heart. And I just said, hey, sorry guys, I'm, I'm not going to participate in this conversation, like being fat is unhealthy, period, end of story. Maybe you can point to some outlier who still has good, you know, biometric markers on their blood panel, even if they're morbidly obese. And yes, I know there's some very skinny people who drop dead of a heart attack or they have horrible cholesterol. So there's outliers on either side, but overall as a population, being fat is fucking bad. I don't think that was a super controversial uh, statement. And I wasn't mean about it. I wasn't attacking anybody personally, but of course, turns out a couple of the people that are arguing with me, are in fact fat. I am fat. I would consider myself fat. I'm about 205. I should probably be about 175, right? Um, but they really took it to heart. My friend who, again, we've had some really brutal disagreements over uh, race and gun control and COVID and stuff like that, but it's always been very civil. I went to go comment on something and I noticed he had defriended me from Facebook, blocked me, blocked my messenger, whatnot. So I emailed him. I'm like, hey man, you, you really only want to interact in this intellectual bubble of yours and and you really only want to live in this echo chamber? Like I really, I kind of thought we had a good thing going. I was getting a lot of 
alternate opinions from you, some of which I was starting to adopt and look into. I've got a couple of books actually here on the back of my shelf. And he said, no, I'm, I'm perfectly fine interacting with people of different beliefs, but uh, I'm only gonna interact with you in these areas where I can control the narrative because social media lacks nuance and you should take personal responsibility and you completely lacked empathy by insulting a woman who I know to have uh, a longstanding problem with her weight, you know? And by the way, there is there's no proof, or it's up to it's it, there's some debate in the medical community whether or not being fat is actually unhealthy or not. And to me, this hit right to the core of the difference with I won't even say conservative and progressive or Democrat and Republican, just a more right-leaning mindset and a more left-leaning mindset. And I'm gonna read what I wrote back. Um I'm going to read to you what I what I wrote back to this gentleman. And I'm like, look, man, telling a fat lady who at the time, I swear to God, didn't know was fat, that being fat is unhealthy is not lacking empathy. It's a fact. I didn't even look her up to see if she was fat as I was posting the response. I was just talking about facts, not feelings. No need to continue the conversation on either your podcast or, you know, in a place where you can control the narrative. I wish you the best of luck, but I refuse to interact with people who promote this form of censorship. In my opinion, this shows weak moral character and a lack of a backbone and kind of what's wrong with our society, right? Everybody only wants to hear what they want to hear. They only want to live in their bubble. Um, you know, we had a we had a friend of mine on that we interviewed. You should go back and check out that podcast with Allison Gilbert. I pretty much disagree with all of Allison Gilbert's uh, political beliefs, but she's a great human being. She's a wonderful mom. She's a wonderful realtor. We work together. We do business together. We break bread together. And we can sit here for two hours and have a disagreement and have a great conversation and then move on, right? Because we're adults and we don't have to live in this little intellectual repeater bubble echo chamber where um, we only hear things that we agree on because we don't want our feelings to be hurt. So I digress. And I said, letting your friends interact in an unchallenged echo chamber is doing them no favors. Since you brought it up, if your fat friend dies of a heart attack, cancer, or COVID, aka being fat is one of the comorbidities that is most highly correlated with having a negative outcome with COVID, maybe you'll feel better because you were so nice to her. And I get it. That's that's the nice thing to do. It feels good, right? This is the liberal way. Don't offend anybody. Everybody has to feel good. We can't insult anybody. Before you can have a dialogue with somebody on Facebook, you have to look up their profile to see if they're fat or if they're black or if they're white or if they're trans or if they're a midget or if they're a single mom because you don't want to say anything to offend anybody even if you're just trying to speak in fact. And I said, but what a real friend would do is talk to her about the problem. And, and be a friend. And yes, being morbidly obese, I've, I've looked her up. She is, in fact, morbidly obese. That is a problem. You know, instead of making her feel good or making yourself feel good because you're not willing to have the fierce conversations, the tough conversations with your friend, you know, you could help her face the facts of what's going on, maybe help her get help, maybe support her in like her health and fitness journey or her weight loss goal. And in my opinion, that's what a real friend would do. What you're, what you're suggesting is more along the lines of being a classic enabler. Best of luck, no need to respond. Clearly, I see where you stand on these issues, right? And, and, and this is the thing. When, when we have disagreements, all of us as a society, like we can have disagreements, right? We can have fierce disagreements. We can have vicious disagreements. We have disagreements that end friendships, right? But this this gaslighting of trying to speak things into existence that we know are not 
true, right? And there's a magazine cover here, a series of magazine covers that I saw on Cosmo. And, you know, it was saying, this is healthy, right? This is this is healthy. And there was this whole series of magazine covers on Cosmo where it just had morbidly obese women. And it said, this is healthy. Now, look, I have no problem with a morbidly obese woman being on the cover of a magazine, right? You want to put somebody on the cover of a magazine and, and they're morbidly obese and talk about their talent or talk about that you can be beautiful at any size or talk about the fact that they can be a singer or an actor or they can be a great mom or they can be a model for plus size women, great. But to put people on a magazine cover who are morbidly obese and say, this is healthy, well, I'm here to tell you this is bullshit. Like this, this idea that we can just make everybody feel good and everybody be fine without having to face reality, it's why we're, we're, we're at where we're at as a society, right? Uh, the next topic I wanna talk about is, is homelessness, but I've had this theory for a long time that why are there so many more homeless people in Los Angeles than there were 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? And, and I remember, this goes along with the fat story, I remember when I was a kid, uh, there was this guy, I think his name was Ben, and he he was a bum, uh, he was homeless, he lived right outside the Rite Aid where my mom worked. My mom's been a clerk at Rite Aid her entire, her almost entire adult life. And everybody was very nice to him, you know, uh, the, the store manager would give him a couple bucks once in a while when he would go shag shopping carts and all the girls, they would go to lunch and if they had leftovers, they'd bring them back to him. But I remember my mom talking to me very, very clearly and being like, Ben's a bum. You know, he doesn't want to work. Uh, he's got a a relative, I believe it was a sister, who's pretty wealthy, who lives in Pasadena, who will take him in tomorrow. And he's basically said, I'm not willing to get sober and stop drinking. And I'm a pretty angry drunk, so nobody wants me around. And uh, I'm I'm choosing to drink over choosing to get sober and, and have a place to live and get my life together. Like he had some of these conversations because he lived outside of that Rite Aid for, for years. And, you know, sadly... He ended up dying of exposure or some type of health complications one winter, and it's not exactly freezing cold here in California, but it does get cold in the evenings. He ended up dying, and they they found him in the back lot. And like many people had tried to help him, had tried to give him suggestions, had tried to get him some type of you know homeless services, had tried to talk to him about you know attending AA meetings and getting sober so he could go live with his sister. And I'm not saying everybody who's homeless situation is this clear cut, but as a child my parents and everybody else in the community referred to him as a bum. He knew he was a bum, right? Like everybody everybody showed that to their kids as a cautionary tale of like, hey man, you wanna stay off of drugs, you wanna stay off of alcohol, you wanna keep your life together. And, and my presumption is, and I don't have any way of proving this, unfortunately, because I've talked with the, I've talked with my tutor about this of like how you could maybe do a scientific study to maybe prove this. My presumption is that through all of society, and in modern day America, there's always been a big cross section of people that have lived right on that razor's edge. And maybe it's because they were predispositioned to being alcoholics or drug addicts. Maybe it's because they had a low IQ. Maybe it's because policy or systematic racism or the deck was just stacked against them. Maybe it's because they were abused as children. Maybe it's because they grew up in a single parent household where everybody did the best they could, but there just wasn't enough money. Maybe there's a million different reasons why somebody's living right on that razor's edge, right? But up until pick a time period, mid 80s, mid 90s, you, you really either 
talked down about that cross-section of society, if they allowed themselves to fall off that razor's edge, or there was church, or there was Boy Scouts, or there was community service groups, or there was the Rotary Club, or there was the veterans, uh, the VFW, you know, veterans of foreign wars. There was some type of community glue that held people together, plus kind of the shame of falling off that razor's edge. And what's happened as we've kind of gone into this 1984 newspeak, oh no, you can't, you can't call them bums, you have to call them homeless, uh, okay. And then you can't call them homeless. You have to call them the unhoused. And then, you know, you can't call them criminals. You have to call them, uh, oh, what's the new word that they're using in San Francisco, Chris? You can't call them criminals. You have to call them like um, uh, penally involved or criminally involved or something like this. You got to look this up, Chris. It's the craziest term. It's like they they took the word criminal out of everywhere. I think it was in Oakland and San Francisco that now they're like, uh, oh, what are they called? They're called something involved. And, uh, and, it, and it, you, you, you just have to, you have to change the language. You have to change the appearance. You can't make people feel bad. You can't generalize them. You can't group them. And so my thought is because we've normalized in America, the drug use, the alcoholism, the, you know, not, not calling people a bum, making excuses for them, more and more social programs. I think a lot of these people that were always riding the razor's edge, right? And maybe they were going to jump from minimum wage job to minimum wage job and lives on their cousin's couch and then sleep in their buddy's garage. And then, you know, maybe some point they get a break and they make a little bit of money enough to like move out to the middle of nowhere, or get a job in Oklahoma or relocate to Arizona and like make a life for themselves. We've just normalized it to where now they're falling off the razor's edge, right? And and once you're in that bad situation and you fall off the razor's edge and now you're homeless or you're a bum or you're unhoused, you can't get back to the other side, right? Because you don't even have a place to go take a shower, to get some fresh clothes, to clean up, to go to a job interview, to you know sustain work for a couple of weeks, get that first paycheck. So I do believe there should be social programs for those who are the most vulnerable among us. But I think as a society, we've also normalized this like, oh, everybody's got an excuse. Everybody's got a reason to be homeless. You know, poor them. Oh, they're not fat because that's still healthy even if they're morbidly obese. Like the whole thing is just crazy to me. Justice involved. Justice involved, yes. So now, now you're no longer a criminal. You're no longer an ex-con. You're no longer a prisoner in the Bay Area because they got to make everybody feel good and they can't use any derogatory terms. You are now justice involved. So, you know, if you're... Um, if you're Scott Peterson, you murdered your wife and baby, which I just listened to a podcast. I'm not sure if Scott Peterson murdered his wife and baby. Anyway, but if you're, you know, in if you're on death row for murdering your wife and baby, you're no longer a murderer, you're no longer a criminal, you're justice involved, um, which is crazy to me. So enough about this, but I'm just I'm I, I'm sick of one, I'm I'm kind of offended that this guy blocked me and wanted to end our friendship over something that silly. Uh and two, I, I just think it's it's so dangerous for people to be self-censoring themselves, for corporations to be censoring themselves, for people trying to cancel each other if you say fat instead of obese or obese instead of slightly overweight or no, no, there is no such thing as fat or obese because everything is healthy because Cosmo says so. So anyway, that's my rant on that. So speaking of homelessness, let's talk about Proposition HHH. So Proposition HHH was a housing proposition here in Southern California in Los Angeles County uh, back in 2016. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Southern California or if it's different in your municipality, uh, every two years when we go to vote for um, either congressmen or four years when there's presidents and or senators and or congressmen, uh, there's always this 
slew of propositions on the ballots, especially in here in LA. There's usually between about 12 and 30 of them to vote on usually some type of tax, right? It's usually... It's always all. It's almost always some type of tax. It's either some type of excess tax or some type of bond measure that they're trying to pass or some type of new property tax or some type of new school bond or whatever. And for most of my life, an overwhelming majority of those have passed because the way they're worded, it's like, you know, the, the dying cats and troubled children of inner city schools, Proposition 136 or whatever. And then you read it, and it's like, well, how can I not support like dying tortured cats and 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 struggling kids in inner city schools? And then of course, if you read the bill, it, it very rarely has exactly to do with the title of the bill that you would think. So anyway, 2016, this proposition HHH comes up and it's like, well, for $1.2 billion, $1.2 billion, which by the way, the city did not have, uh, we are going to pass. Uh, proposition HHH, and we're going to build 10,000 houses. Now, for any of you that don't live in California, houses here are really fucking expensive. Local city ordinance makes building properties nearly impossible at all, and it makes it 100% possible to build low to moderate income housing. So for example, I know uh, a really good developer in the area who does these small lot subdivisions. So he'll buy three or four or five properties. He'll level them in that place. He'll make these three-story vertical condos so you can fit about 12 to 20 condos on what used to have three houses. It makes for denser housing, but it also creates more housing, which we def def uh, desperately need here in California. The problem is over the last five years, just to turn a profit, just to turn a small profit, the guy's not getting rich. He's constantly have projects going. This isn't like big FU money. He sells out one 20 unit project and he's retiring to the Cayman Islands. It's like just to make a profit of 10 to 20%, he's had to uh, move his starting price per unit from $800,000 a unit to $1.2 million a unit just in the last five years because of construction costs, because of land costs, because of the fact that it takes five years to go through the permitting process here in LA and you gotta dig water wells and you gotta do this. Uh, I just gotta tell you this side story. So this is hilarious. This is how stupid building codes are in California. So he's building these units where of course the LA Times wrote him up for like this evil developer that's not willing to build any low to moderate income housing units and all of these units he's building are starting at $980,000 or something. So the units he's building is on a cul-de-sac. The units end at the end of his street. And on the other side of that cul-de-sac, which is down an embankment, is like a main Los Angeles thoroughfare. It's called Glendale Boulevard. It connects Glendale to the five freeway. It's like a major thoroughfare from you know one of the little suburbs of Los Angeles or little communities within Los Angeles <clears throat> right to the five freeway. That street will never go away. Like unless we get bombed, that, that street's never going away. So he's building his units and the city inspector comes out and he's like, well, you know, it's, it's city code that if you're building a new unit, you've got to run the plumbing, the piping, the copper, the wire, the electrical, the sewage, you've got to run it. And I don't know exactly what the code was. We'll say 20 feet. You got to run it 20 feet past your property for, uh, you know, future developments. So he looks out and he looks at the, looks at the city code guy and he looks out and he's like, sir, he's like, that's Glendale Boulevard. We're at the end of the cul-de-sac where there will never be, ever be a house on the other side. What are we running plumbing and piping and sewage and, and, and sidewalks to? And the guy's like, well, I, I don't care. That's, that's the building code. And he's like, yeah, but that, that, 
I'm literally building a bridge and a tunnel and sewage to nowhere because nobody will ever build there. And that's going to cost me like $50,000 of extra development costs. And they're like, well, sorry, that's building code. Get it done or we're ceasing construction. So simultaneously, the city's just bending him over um, and he's having to add $50,000 to his build costs, which guess what? He's not going to make $50,000 less money. So that's got to get passed on to the end consumer who ends up buying the house. And then of course the LA times come out and does a hit piece on him on how he's like this evil, rich, greedy developer, just, you know, rubbing his gold coins at night because he can't make houses on the cheap. So I tell you that story because of this, the city of Los Angeles said that they were going to build 10,000 houses for $1.2 billion. So let's just take $1.2 billion and divide that by 10,000 houses. The city of Los Angeles, when they passed Proposition HH, claimed that they were going to build houses in Los Angeles County for $120,000 each. Now, even going back to 2016, when lumber wasn't three times as expensive as it is now, you can't even build, you can't even buy the building materials for a house in Los Angeles for $120,000. So, okay, you dig into the bill a little bit more and it's like, well, even though this is what politicians are saying that they're gonna build 10,000 houses for the homeless, that's not really how it's gonna work. We're gonna subsidize a few thousand and we're gonna convert a few thousand and yes, we're gonna build a few thousand more, but we'll get to 10,000 units for homeless people for $1.2 billion. Okay, well, maybe the, you're the city. Maybe you can bypass all those building codes. Maybe you have some economies of scale. Maybe you're gonna actually do the right thing and get a bunch of different contractors to bid against each other and like drive down the cost. Of course, none of that happened. Maybe you've already vetted the sites where you're going to have some of these homeless um, shelters built or these homeless units built or these homeless apartments or these homeless condos. None of that was done. None of the pre-work was done, right? So of course, what do they do? They, they It passes because California's passed anything that sounds like it's gonna help. Anything on the progressive agenda gets passed here. So they, they, they pass the bill and then they start scouting out sites for where they're gonna build this. Well, guess what? The 65% of Los Angelinos who passed the bill, then when all of a sudden there's a suitable site to build for cheap, everybody in Southern California started saying, well, no, don't build it in my community. They tried to build one in Koreatown. The Koreatown City Council banded together, stopped the construction. They tried to build one in North Hollywood. They tried to build it. You can't build one in Beverly Hills, of course. Uh, but everywhere they tried to build one, people said, no, 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 no. Not, I, I want to help the homeless people, but I don't want them in my community. I don't want homeless people living in an apartment next to me and driving down my property value and shopping at my Trader Joe's and going into my liquor store or my Whole Foods. No, 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 no. Put them in somebody else's community. So then they would go try to put them in another community and another community and just an absolute shit show where now cities start suing each other because there's all these different municipalities within LA City and LA County. So now this $1.2 billion, a bunch of it is going to lawsuits on how they're going to find a suitable location to actually build the property, right? Because who would do any pre-work before you authorize $1.2 billion of funding? Oh, I digress because it gets worse. So then if you read the actual bill, which I did when it came out and I voted against and I try to get all my realtor friends and I try to get all my friends that are libertarians, conservatives, give a shit about where our tax money is going. I tried to get them to um, to vote against this, but it feels really good. It feels really good. We're gonna, we're gonna get 10,000 homes out there for the homeless. I'm like, guys, this is a total boondoggle. Like they don't know how they're going to fund the ongoing maintenance. They don't know how they're gonna fund the ongoing social services that they said was going to come with each unit, right? Cause you just can't put somebody who's 
a drug addict or has psychosis or has major mental problems, you can't just put them in an apartment and be like, oh, they'll be fine, they'll be fine. No, you've got, you've got to get mental health services and they've got to have some food and they've got to have some type of job program. Of course, we passed this bill to house 10,000 homeless people with no clue how we're actually gonna take care of the 10,000 homeless people that we now put in homes, right? Because the answer isn't just everybody's homeless needs a home. The answer is people are homeless because they're choosing to be homeless or they have drug and alcohol problems or they have psychosis problems or they have PTSD problems or they have disability problems. Like it's just not about the housing, right? So I read the bill and one, there was no ongoing funding for this stuff, which they called, what did they call it? They called it assisted, assistant housing, something to that effect. Um, I'll look this up. Um, oh, there's another Cosmo model. But by the way, just I didn't care about this Cosmo model because this isn't saying that she's healthy. It's just saying she's an influencer. Great. She's awesome. She's an influencer. I don't know who she is. Maybe she's a singer or whatever. I digress. Uh, okay. So the high cost of housing here, proposition HH. Okay. Here's what I wanted to say. Now, if we go to the bill, the bill said proposition HH in November of 2006 passed by an overwhelming majority or margin authorizing city council to issue up to $1.2 billion in general obligation bonds. Here's the magic word people to partially subsidize the development of up to 10,000 supportive housing units. That's the word I was looking for supportive housing. Now, partially is a really fucking dangerous word in government, right? Because at least if they would have said we got $1.2 billion, whatever we can do with it, that's what we're going to do. Cost of construction goes up. Oh, well, we're going to build 8,000 units instead of 10,000. If we totally screwed this up, if we spend five years in lawsuits just trying to find a location, it is what it is, but we've authorized $1.2 billion to this project and that's it. No, 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 my friends. No, no, no. Anytime the government says partially, you know the boondoggle is coming. So we're now five years later and five years later, costs, total development costs, are currently at $4 billion, $86 million. $4 billion, $86,000. And I do not in any way, shape, or form believe this number um, because I think there's all kinds of shenanigans and fuckery that's going on here. But they claim that about 5,700 units five years later are in operation, right? So now some of these development costs are you know, acquisition of land and there's obviously a bunch of construction projects under underway. So let, let's say they do get to their 10,000 number, right? They get to their 10,000 unit number, which they're not going to, right? They're not gonna get to the 10,000 number because the first thing is, they were never going to build 10,000 units. They were going to build somewhere between four and five, and then they were going to subsidize others. Like if you read the fine print on one of these pages, it talks about how well a, a, a large portion of the money is going to subsidies for up to 10 years for houses that were converted. So they basically kind of like HUD housing um, or kind of like uh, Section 8 housing. They they created a bond where they could house people for 10 years, but they don't own the underlying asset, right? That's either either some type of other boondoggle that they're working out or they're paying private homeowners to subsidize uh, rent for the homeless or whatever the case may be. So let, let's say they do end up with all 10,000 units, right? Which they're not going to, but let's just, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they do. And let's say the city of LA owns all 10,000 of those units, which they won't, but let's just say they do. So we're currently at 4 billion, 800 or 4 billion, 86 million. They've got about a little over half of them built two third of them either currently underdeveloped or being constructed. So let's say they're three fourths, 
I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they're five-sixths of the way done with all the spending, which I don't believe that either. But let's just say they're going to end up somewhere around $5 billion in total funding out of the general fund, out of bonds they issued, out of all the stuff that they did. They're going to end up with about 10,000 units in some way, shape, or form for about $5 billion. And in about 10 years, a third of those units are going to fall off because they were only subsidized on this 10-year program. So you'll end up with about 7,000 units for about $5 billion in costs. So let's just do the math. Let's take $5 billion divide by 7,000 units. Do, 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 5 billion divide by 7,000. That comes out to a cost of $714,000 per unit. $714,000 per unit built, constructed, and presumably part of the housing stock for the homeless for the foreseeable future. Because again, those those 3,000 or so are going to fall off. Those won't be in inventory anymore. You know, now we're going to have about 7,000 houses. By the way, guess what? Those 7,000 houses are going to have to be maintained and upkeep and utilities and all kinds of other ongoing funding. But just the hard cost of construction and acquisition are running us at $750,000 per house. Chris, can you look this up for me? In 2016, well, the bill was passed in 2016, so let's say they don't really roll it out to 2017. In 2017, can you look at what the median cost of a home was in L.A. County? So 2017, median house of a home, L.A. County. I'm going to guess it was about $380,000. 555. 555, okay, I was wrong. So median price of a house in 2017, which is when this money basically came to fruition, the average house was 555000 okay? The government, if they exert their power, has collective bargaining agreement because they can do certain things that we cannot because we don't have $4 billion to go buy houses. So let's say 555, let's say they went below the median price. They bought, the, the, the city of LA said, you know what, we're not gonna embark on this construction project we don't really know how we're going to pay for the services anyways. So let's just buy one-off houses, condos. Yeah, we're going to have to go a little bit out to the outlier areas of Palmdale and West Covina and Riverside County and you know maybe, maybe South LA. But we can probably pick up with our collective bargaining agreement with a, with a absolute crack team of realtors. Um, we can probably pick up houses hundred to two hundred thousand dollars below the median price, right? So maybe they could have got uh, units in condo buildings or small single-family residents all over the the county for three to four hundred thousand dollars. Let's say four hundred thousand dollars, because the median price, of course, is pulling in all those high-cost areas: West LA, Brentwood, Los Feliz, whatnot. Because that's the median. So we could probably find a lot of housing in outlying areas for significantly lower than that. So let's say three to four to yeah, three to four hundred thousand dollars. So the county, instead of embarking on this boondoggle construction project where they didn't know how they were going to fund it. They didn't know where they were going to place them. You know, I, I just, the, the cynic in me believes there's all kinds of kickbacks with these contractors. And I bet you if I dug in deeper, somehow the contractors that won the bid uh, are owned by the cousin of the guy that sits on the city council. Like we know this shit happens. Let's not kid ourselves. But if they just went out and said, you know what, we're going to buy as many units as we can for $350,000. So they've got their, they've got their 5 billion that they just wasted. 
And now they're going to buy houses for $350,000. They could have ended up with 14,000 houses across LA County, 14,000 houses across LA County. Now I understand the libertarian in me hates this because then you start artificially inflating the prices of the housing supply because the government is kind of this buyer of last resort. I'm not a huge fan here, but I'm just saying, if we're gonna talk about the lesser of two evils, they could have got twice as many houses five years ago. And guess what? They've got like 3,000 homeless people that have been housed now because of these programs. And we could have had 14,000 families housed three years ago. And get this, because the government is so slow and so inefficient. Chris, I want you to look this up now. So since 2017, what has the average property appreciation been uh, in LA County since 2017? Maybe look at like annual property appreciation last 10 years and you can get a little graph or something there. I'm going to guess we're up like 10% a year since 2017, something like that. You know, it's probably going to go like up 8%, up 7%, up 4%, up 10%. So remember, we're going to end up with 7,000 properties that we don't know how to fund. We could have had 14,000 properties in place four years ago for homeless people to live in and actually start rehabilitating people and getting them back on, on, on track and maybe get a job before COVID hit. And I'm going to guess, I'm going to take a wild guess and say 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, we've seen, yeah, we've seen like eight to 9% appreciation throughout Los Angeles County. So your average house that LA would have bought for three, 350, 400 is up maybe 40% in value. So instead of losing money and sinking money into this endless pit of construction and fighting cities and trying to find locations, you know, maybe their portfolio of five billion properties is now worth six or seven. I mean, I have an article here that says home prices in Los Angeles are sixty six percent more expensive than five years ago. Sixty six percent. Holy fuck. So that means if L.A. County would have just said, hey, we're taking our four or five billion dollars, we're buying as many units as we can and we're going to place as many homeless people as quickly as we can. First of all, we would have had tens of thousands of homeless people off the street three or four years earlier. They would have bought property that was already existing stock. Now, of course, we do have a housing crisis in California. So this does create kind of this cascading second and third level effects that probably I would also be complaining about today. So there's no perfect answer. But this portfolio of this portfolio of $4 billion or $5 billion worth of houses would be up 67% in value. Like the government could have actually made money on a program for a change instead of just sinking endless dollars into a program. And, you know, there's some further reading here on um, uh, LA Times. You know, they talked about, well, now that they can't build these houses fast enough, now they're trying to do these little eight by eight tiny house sheds. By the time they they did construction on these, a tiny house, like I'm talking about like a tough shed, you know, a tough shed you can buy at Home Depot for about 12 grand, pumping electricity into it and common plumbing, like these don't have individual bathrooms. You have to go to communal bathrooms. Uh, I drove by one of them actually because I wanted to see what they were like. Uh, so they're like, they're basically tough sheds. They're insulated tough sheds with some electricity. So maybe they're double the cost of a tough shed. You can go buy a tough shed right now. I can go buy a tough shed right now at Home Depot for about twelve dollars to $15,000, put it in the back. I can run an electrical line out there, put a split unit air conditioning unit. That'll cost me about $3,000. Probably get a good plumber in here to run like, 
you know, some water, like drinking water, and tell Chris he's got to come in to use our bathroom. We're using communal bathroom. I could probably build one of these for like 20 grand in my backyard. But somehow the city of LA is finding a way to spend $130,000 per unit. And they've got economy of scale because they're putting 50, 60, 70 of them on like one lot. It's just absolutely insane, right? And then uh, LAist and another LA Times article talks about how a bunch of the units that they're building that aren't going to be ready for another year or two and they're going to end up being significantly more expensive than even this article, which was back in September of last year. You know, lumber prices have almost doubled and in some cases tripled since September of last year. So, you know, these articles six months ago that were saying, oh, these houses that aren't going to be complete for a couple more years that are running 500,000. There was another one in here. The uh, the project over in uh, da, 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 one of the projects is now up to seven hundred fifty thousand per unit, and they're not done, so that's really going to be eight or nine hundred thousand by the time they get building supplies in. You know, this is just a complete clusterfuck, right? And this is just proof that like good intentions and well-meaning policy does not mean that you have positive outcomes, right? I get it. I, I drive by people, I walk by people, I don't want people to be homeless, right? I don't want people to be destitute. But that doesn't mean that to feel good about yourself, you have to vote for these horrific policies that are never enacted the way they say they are. They always cost significantly more than advertised and they never do as much good as we think they are, right? And then what's gonna end up happening when they get to the end of spending this four or $5 billion in construction, they're going to find out that they don't have any money left over for maintenance or for mental health or for food, drug, utilities. And I guarantee you by 2022, there's going to be another proposition on the ballot saying, hey, uh, we failed and we really need to take care of these homeless people. So let's do another bond measure for a billion dollars, right? And last thought on this. It would be bad enough if this was just money we were spending out of the county treasury that we already had, but we're not, we're not. We're issuing bonds, and I think I, I closed that tab actually. Um, we're issuing bonds, and, and this is how a bond works. A bond works like this. County of Los Angeles wants to spend $1.2 billion on a housing initiative, okay? So they go to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or whatever. And they say, hey, we want, want $1.2 billion worth of bonds. They say, okay, great. Um, or we want $1.2 million worth of money. We have authorized $1.2 million worth of money. And they say, okay, well, we're going to take our underwriting fee and our this fee and our that fee. And we're going to end up peeling off 3 to 5% off the top. And then if you want to sell these bonds to investors and pension funds and very wealthy people who are comfortable making their 2 or 3% a year, you're going to have to pay 2 or 3% a year, 4% or 5% or 1% or whatever they pay in interest. So that $1.2 billion, we didn't have that money here in the county of Los Angeles. We're, we're mortgaging our future. We're paying some investment bank some fee to underwrite this and take this to the public. And then we're paying interest payments. So what really happens, and I don't have the math in front of me, I didn't feel like doing this much research, but that $1.2 billion that we said was gonna go to homelessness, we issued, what we actually approved was the right to issue bonds to raise the 1.2 billion. So there's probably like some 10% slippage in there, right? So of that 1.2 billion, somewhere in there, by the time you pay the fees and the underwriting fees and the interest over 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or however long they can sell these bonds for, they're probably 10-year bonds. Um, we end up we end up losing about 10%, right? It's like it's like a tax off the top on the tax 
that we're raising to issue bonds. So so now we've got probably a 10-year horizon where we're paying back this $1.2 billion. And we didn't even get the $1.2 billion. We probably got somewhere south of $1.1 billion because we had to pay $100 million in interest and uh, underwriting fees and banker fees and kickback fees and all this other shit. And for Christ's sakes, man, it just never works out. Can you guys read these fucking propositions before you vote for them? Who I'm going to have a stroke. All right, next let's talk about something so much more, so much less stressful, Hamas and Israel. All right, so we're, we're coming to you, obviously, I mentioned in May of 2021, and once again, uh, Hamas is lobbing rockets at Israel for the last couple of weeks. I think actually in the last 24 hours, they've just announced some type of ceasefire. And, you know, this has been, for most of my adult life, uh, this has been the narrative. Israel, well, this is the narrative in the media and usually or most recently by the left, you know, whether that's Democrats or progressives. Uh, Israel is stronger. They get funding from America. They're pro-America. They're pro-Western. So therefore, they are the oppressors and the Palestinian people are the oppressed. And, and to be clear, we can go back historically and we can talk about what happened after World War II, but there's really no reason for a history lesson. You can read it on Wikipedia. And, you know, to say the Jews got fucked in World War II is kind of the understatement of the century. Basically, two-thirds of all ethnic Jews were wiped out during World War II. And they kind of needed a place to go. So the powers that be, you know, basically the the precursor to what became the UN, uh, the people that won the war, they kind of established Israel as an independent nation. There was always all kinds of disputes over the people that were left in Israel or who were in Israel because there were Jews in Israel. There were Palestinians in Israel, in Israel although I don't think they called themselves Palestinians then. Uh, basically Muslims, um, you know, there, there's just been a lot of dispute over territory. And what kicked off this most recent dispute, despite what you might have read in the media, is there's a pending case in the Supreme Court on six houses going back something like 70 years and who owns these houses, right? Like first it was owned by some somebody local, I don't know, maybe they were even Bedouins, Bedouins uh, loaned the, owned the local area, and then there's like these six houses that were owned, and then they were occupied by Jews when Israel became a nation state, and then there was some type of skirmish, and they were taken over by Palestinians, and now that area, or that settlement, as they're frequently called, is being um, is being resettled by Jews, so now the heirs, or the, you know, the... Um, the uh, the children or the grandchildren of the people that were kicked out of those houses now want those houses back. And this has been going on. It's been in the the form of the Israeli Supreme Court. I think they actually call it the Supreme Court. Uh, it's been going on, like this case has been going on for decades and it's about to be heard by the Supreme Court. And there's a lot of concern that the Supreme Court is going to set precedent for, you know, do Palestinians get to retain ownership? Do Jews who were driven out of certain settlements during certain skirmishes going back historically, do they have the right to go back and reoccupy? Like it's a, it's a big issue. I don't want to say it's not, but what we're basically talking about is like gentrification and property rights. There wasn't some civil rights massacre in the streets where the IDF, the the Israeli defense, what is what does the IDF stand for? Israeli Defense Federation. Oh, that's the that's the Israeli uh, military, but. Israeli Defense Forces. Oh, yeah, there you go. Duh. Uh, Israeli Defense Forces. Sorry, my my military history is not great today. Um, had one too many uh, modelos. So the uh, the IDF, you know, it's not like they pulled out a bunch of Palestinians and executed them in the streets. There's, there's no human rights violation or, or civil rights violation here, right? It's like there's a court case coming up 
that basically at the root of the issue is property rights and gentrification, right? It, for for decades, these settlements have been going back and forth and, you know, Jews have been trying to push out into more settlements and they've been willing to give up this and they've been willing to give up that, but they're not willing to give up this. And it's very complicated. There's people infinitely smarter than me that have multiple PhDs in this area that they can't explain all the nuance going back 80 years and all the geopolitical problems. And then you go back historically even further to like biblical times and there's all kinds of, I mean, there's just a lot of shit going on, right? And I'm not gonna say that at various times, both sides of the argument haven't been up to some type of shenanigans or some type of fuckery. And I'm not gonna say that the Israelis are without sin in this conflict, right? There's there's definitely been, anytime there's war, anytime there's guns, anytime there's bombs, anytime there's soldiers, there's going to be, horrendous acts uh, uh, perpetrated by both sides, right? I'm not I'm not giving Israel a full pass here. But the bottom line is there's like a court case coming up. And I think, personally, this is my opinion, I think because America has taken a less aggressive stance in supporting Israel, and under Trump, one of the things that I like that he did was he cut off all foreign aid to uh, Hamas and the uh, uh, Palestinian Liberation front that's where it is the plf can you look that up chris i don't want to get this wrong plf pla palestinian liberation it's it's very incestual right because like hamas is a recognized terrorist group like if you go to the cia website or the uh, national security agency website or you look at a travel agency yeah plf PLF, palestinian liberation front yeah palestinian liberation Front. if you look at that hamas is a is a uh, terrorist organization recognized by pretty much everybody except for Iran and Syria as a terrorist organization. But Hamas is also a political party in Palestine. So the Palestinian Liberation Front, it's all it's all very incestual, it's very confusing. One of the things I like Trump did was because of the death of this um, uh, uh, ex-soldier, this veteran who was in Israel, got killed by a Hamas terrorist, uh, Trump used that as an excuse to cut off funding to the Palestinians and said, hey, basically the Palestinian treasury or the Palestinian budget uh, allows for them to compensate the family of people who commit terrorist acts. So for example, you're a suicide bomber, you go in, you blow up a Jewish synagogue or you set off a car bomb in a, a public square, the family of the deceased or the suicide bomber, the criminal, uh, they get compensated from the PLF for, they don't they don't call it obviously compensation for terrorism, but they, they have some rosy uh, way that they frame it. But basically you're paying for people to do terrorist acts and then your family's taken care of, right? So you can imagine if you're living in a poor country and you're religiously and kind of uh, radicalized, if you're very religious and radicalized, and then you're like, you don't have a lot to look forward to. You can barely pay for your family. You can barely afford to live. And you're like, well, if, if I go do this terrorist act, not only does that serve my perverse version of my God and it makes me kind of a martyr, but my family will be taken care of, right? It's really dangerous. So uh, Trump cut off all funding to the PLF and to Palestine. As soon as Biden got into office, he reauthorized $100 million worth of funds to go to Palestine. And again, this is all worded in the way of infrastructure and, and humanitarian aid and whatnot, but we kind of know where the money is going, okay? Just like follow the money. Uh, so anyway, so that happened. So I think this is kind of emboldening Palestine. But th this stuff on the, the settlements, and I, I want to go to this map actually. So for those of you that are interested in doing historical reading on this, I would really read about the Six-Day War, right? Because the Six-Day War really exemplifies the struggle 
And obviously, this the Six Day War was with Egypt. It was not with Hamas. Hamas, I don't even think it was a titled um, branch of terrorism back in 1967 when the Six Day War happened. But this is kind of like symptomatic of what Israel's been dealing with since the beginning of their formation after World War II. And effectively what happens is Egypt in 1967 has decided they want to wipe um, Israel off the map. And I believe at the time it was going to be like a three-pronged attack from Jordan, either Syria or Lebanon, and Egypt. But Egypt was the one that was amassing tanks. And Israel basically intercepts transmissions that these tank brigades are headed for Israel and they're going to roll through the country and they're going to wipe Israel off the face of the map. So Israel counterattacks, right? And and this is what has happened over and over again. And, and to tell you the truth, Israel might have even done the preemptive attacking because like the tanks are rolling through the desert coming to them and Egypt might not have technically fired a shot yet, but they intercepted transmissions that like these tanks are going to roll through Israel and kill all the Jews. And they had just gone through World War II 25 years earlier and seen two thirds of all Jews killed. So they're probably going to react pretty aggressively. So they get planes in the air and this interactive map, there's a really great interactive map at uh, geocron.com. You guys should check this out. You can go all the way back to 3000 BC before Christ and you can do an interactive map year by year of what countries grew and expanded and what territories and who was owned by what. So you can see here that this is Israel, this little tiny purple dot in the middle, right? And it, it's it's kind of funny to me, although I do feel for anybody who's getting displaced, who's getting their home taken away because the Jewish settlements are expanding. But when they say that the Jews are occupying Arab land, I mean, look around here, right? You've got Turkey, you've got Iran, you've got Iraq, you've got Saudi Arabia, you've got uh, the Sudan, you've got Egypt. You all of the all this area, everything you basically see on this map, other than Greece. Um, oh, you've got Afghanistan over here. Yeah, everything you see on this map, except for this little tiny corner of Greece and this little tiny corner of I think that's um, I think that's Italy. Um, all of this is all Muslim. All of it. All of it. And this is Israel right here. So in 1967, you can see this purple right here is Israel. And Egypt is about ready to attack. And this this green right here, this is the Suez Canal. This green right here is all Egypt. Well, look what happens in 1968. Israel basically doubles in size because in the counterattack, they destroyed Egypt, right? Like Egypt thought they had figured out what the military capability of Israel was. And if you read about it in the Six Day War, it's really fascinating. What ended up winning the war for the Israelis is they found a way to be more efficient with reloading and refueling planes. So they were able to refuel and reload with bombs these planes like four times as fast as the Egyptians had believed they could. So by the time the Egyptians rolled up to the border of Israel, all their tanks and all their heavy equipment was destroyed. And Israel in the counterattack basically said, okay, fuck you. If you're going to threaten our sovereignty as a country, we're going to take back this buffer, this east side of the Suez Canal. And Israel doubles in size in 1968, right? So yes, Israel did occupy Arab land, but they did it because they were protecting their sovereignty. It's kind of like if my neighbor, if I find out my neighbor's got a gun and a knife and he's coming over to rape my daughter, and in the counterattack of repelling my neighbor, I kind of kill him and take his house, it kind of feels like fair game, right? Like, yeah, I doubled the size of my lot. I now have two houses instead of one house. But the way that I did that is because I killed my neighbor because he was about to rape my daughter. I kind of call that fair game. But look at this. This is kind of interesting. As you fast forward through the years... So 1970, 71, 72, 70, I think it's in 77 it happens. So in 75, they give back part to Egypt. 76, they give back more of Israel. 78, 79, I think by 84, 
if you go to, yeah, by 84, Israel shrinks by half of its size once again. And then as you fast forward again, um, a couple, I think at some point in the 90s, they give up certain parts of like uh, Gaza, the West Bank. There's certain territories that they give back to Palestine or they kind of agree to like just not expand uh, settlements there. But this is a really interesting interactive map where you can see how the country is really small. The only time that they grew was when they were getting attacked and threatened with getting uh, uh, wiped off the face of the earth. And now they're basically where they're at, right? And this has been the ongoing narrative my entire adult life. Hamas, for whatever reason, whether they have a legitimate gripe over some settlement or they just, they're getting new funding by the US or Iraq or Iran or whoever's using Hamas as like a proxy state to fuck with Israel, they start launching rockets indiscriminately, right? And Chris, maybe you can bring up that picture of the Iron Dome, just Google Israel Iron Dome. And what you see in the Iron Dome is you see all these kind of like squiggly lines, which are a bunch of these homemade rockets being launched from Palestine or from Hamas indiscriminately into Israel. Like they're just trying to launch anything they can to create any type of destruction they ha they can. And it's indiscriminate. They don't care if they kill citizens. They don't care if they kill kids. And then there's an iron dome, which is not really an iron dome. It's an iron dome with other missiles that comes straight into the air. And it's, it's really, it's, it's really, if it wasn't so disgusting, it would almost be beautiful in the execution. And the only purpose of the rockets that Israel is firing is to shoot the rockets out of the sky that Hamas is shooting into Israel, right? So think about this for a minute. Hamas starts the attack. They're firing indiscriminately, firing indiscriminately, firing indiscriminately. Israel launches all these countermeasures to try to blow up these bombs in the air. And after a couple of days, they're like, fuck this, we're, we're, we're over this. We're gonna start bombing you back. And all along the border, uh, by the way, I have to tell you about my Israel story in a second. All along the border of this uh, of this conflict conflict area, there's all these tunnels and there's all kinds of like human shields being used by Hamas where they'll put their headquarters in a school or in a church or a hospital so that if they get bombed, it's just horrible PR because of course then civilians die and that's always horrible in war. Um, but it's like one side's trying to protect their citizens from getting bombed and one side is using their citizens and shooting human shields, human shields. It really just feels, it really just feels that simplistic to me, right? And um, I'll tell you, there's a couple things that, that again, I'm not a scholar on this area. I barely graduated high school, but there's a couple things that have really helped me boil this down. One is a great friend and mentor of mine is about a 70 year old Jewish guy. And he's Jewish by ethnicity. He's an Ashkenazi Jew, um, but he's not super involved in the the Jewish faith. He's not like a hardcore Israeli. He's an American Jew. So, you know, he obviously thinks Israel has the right to exist, the right to defend themselves. I think he would agree with just about everything that I'm saying tonight, although he'd probably correct some of my historical references. Um, but he's not like the super raw, raw Zionist. We have to have our space, although he thinks they have the right to exist. Uh, and he's really helped educate me on this. And then, this is actually very cool, uh, back in 2000, and, what was this? I think it was 2012, 2013. I had a buddy who I was really close with in Boy Scouts, and we kind of lost touch with adults as adults. But luckily, one of my other close friends kept in touch with him. And this dude's awesome. He uh, he did West Point, then he did Ranger School, then he did Special Forces School, couple tours in uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, just like like legit Green Beret, like straight out of the movies, and. Uh, in between, he, he became an officer, and then in between, I can't remember what it is, like captain and major or major and lieutenant colonel, you're kind of encouraged to go get some 
additional former educa uh, formal education. So you go to West Point, you go into the field, you become an officer, or he became an officer after West Point. Uh, he served in the in the Green Beret teams, and then they're like, "All right, cool. Now you got to kind of either go back to the War College, or you got to get a master's degree, or something like that." So he chose to get like an international studies and in political science, and I swear to God, he's going to work for the CIA one day. That's why I don't want to mention his name. Uh, but but basically, like psychological warfare and and kind of operations in in war theaters. He got a degree in Israel. And so I got to go out and stay with him for, I think it was like two, three weeks. And it was so cool because one, he had been there for a couple of years. He had been studying in Hebrew at a Israeli school and he had all the diplomatic papers of like a special liaison to the IDF and uh, the Israeli Defense Force. And so everywhere we went in Israel, we got like the special treatment. I don't know if I can ever go back there again as a tourist because we went, for example, we went to Bethlehem. And a lot of people don't know that Bethlehem is under Palestinian control. You know, Bethlehem, like the probably the most important city in um, in, in the Christian faith, you know, that little manger where Jesus was born. Uh, that's actually under Palestinian control. And so when you drive into Bethlehem, uh, there's checkpoints. And then when you drive out, your car has to get searched and there's military stuff. And it, it's very uncomfortable. Unless you've traveled to Mexico and been pulled over by federales who have machine guns, this is a brand new experience for most Americans. Uh, but luckily I'd, I'd been to Mexico several times and gotten pulled over by federales. So I was used to my car being searched by people with machine guns. But because he had the diplomatic place and all their credentials. It's like, we went right in and right out. We went to the church. I don't know what the church in Bethlehem is that's built over the supposed site of the manger. Maybe you look that up, Chris. Uh, the church of Bethlehem. I think it's controlled half by Armenian Christians, ironically, and half by Jews, I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, they fight sometimes with brooms. Uh, funny story, but we'll post a video to that. And so uh, so we went in and there's like a line out the door. Church, church of the Nativity. Church, church of the Nativity. There you go, in Bethlehem. So um, like line down the street. He just walks up with his diplomatic papers. We went straight to the front of the line. It was very cool. And, and being there, you know, everything in Israel is political. Uh, they have like two different types of beer. Like there's two different versions of Coors Light, depending on like what neighborhood you're in. You only ask for this one. Everything, because it's all political. Everything in Israel is political, right? And so what's funny is that uh, when I get tan, I can get pretty brown and pretty dark. And uh, before my hair th started thinning a couple of years ago, when I let it get longer, it's very like frizzy and nappy and I have this very curly hair. So everywhere I went in Israel, everybody just assumed that I was part of their local tribe, right? So the Armenians talked to me in Armenian. The Palestinians tried to speak to me in whatever Arabic uh, language they spoke. Um, the Jews tried to speak to me in Hebrew. The Americans assumed I was American. It was a really kind of uh, unique experience, like walking through Jerusalem. And as we walked by every little shop or store, or trinket, whatever, like everybody just started talking to me in their native, in their native tongue because they thought I was like their native tongue. I guess I should have been a spy maybe. Uh, but it was, it was a unique experience and I didn't have a strong opinion when I got to Israel about the conflict and what was going on. It was it was very interesting driving through certain Israeli communities and finding out for the first time ever that there's 2 million non-Jews that live in Israel. There's a shit ton of Muslims that live peacefully in Israel. There's Palestinians that live peacefully in Israel. There's Palestinians that commute into Israel because they can get better jobs there, right? Like, everything I saw boots on the ground, Israel's not the problem. And so I came back and I, I really did a lot of reading about this and I read a bunch of Wikipedia pages and I read a couple books and I had a lot of conversations with this mentor of mine who's Jewish and, and I was really trying to boil it down to like what's just the essence of the conflict, right? And, and here's what I came up with and here's what I'll leave you with because I think 
all of this can get into like what's the political left saying and what's the political right saying and what's the media saying and you know in our new kind of marxist doctrine and everybody having to be critical race theory and cross-sectionality it's like everything has to be about who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed and hey just because israel's bigger and has better weapons and gets a lot more funding from the united states doesn't mean that they're morally inferior to the little guys, right? Like in America, we love rooting for the little guys. And I think that's one of the reasons that like the Democrats um, frequently side with like, oh, the poor oppressed Palestinians just because they're lower on the social media, uh, social media, social economic uh, totem pole than, than the Israelis are. But that doesn't mean they're right. Just, just because you're the underdog doesn't mean you're right. And so I was trying to boil this down, and here's what I came up with. Again, going back to this map where everything surrounding Israel is Muslim, and then Israel's Israel. And what I, what I really synthesized it down to is I was like, okay, if all of these Muslim countries and the Palestinian areas and the settlements, if they laid down their weapons tomorrow and they never fired another shot at Israel— Yes, there would be some gentrification. Yes, there would be some settlements that overreached. Yes, there would be some encroachment and there would probably be some some disrespect to some holy sites. Yes, I believe all that would happen. But in general, Israel would invite these people into their society, into their economy, into their working class of people because we already have proof that they've done it with 2 million non-Jews that currently live in Israel. We have a we have proof, we have a thesis for this, right? Uh, we have, we have, oh God, it's so frustrating. If everybody laid down their weapons and stopped fucking with Israel, they would they would welcome them into the economy and into the fabric of their culture. If Israel laid down their weapons tomorrow, they would cease to exist as a country and as a people within 30 days, it would be the Holocaust all over again. If you give, Jordan's actually a pretty cool place. They're not, they don't seem to be angry Muslims that are trying to attack anybody anymore. But if you gave Syria, probably Iraq, definitely Iran, probably Lebanon, probably not Egypt anymore, so that's cool, and definitely 100% Hamas. If you gave them a free-for-all and Israel laid down all of their weapons and all of their defense systems, Israel would cease to exist as a company or <laughs> cease to exist as a country and 8 million Jews would be wiped off the map as quicker quicker than the Holocaust. And so I try to remove myself from all the noise and the politicalness and the, is that a word, politicalness? Yeah, I think so. And the the media filtering their own views onto it. And I'm just like, hey, what's the core, what's, what's the core message here? Who laid down their weapons? What would happen? And that's what I came up with. So, you know, for what it's worth, my humble, uneducated opinion, I guess I just stand with Israel. All right. Well, those are my thoughts for today. Love you lots. If you stuck around this whole hour and watched the episode, I really appreciate you. You know all the things to do. Click the likey button, subscribe. Please do that. Share it with a friend. If you're watching this on Facebook, hopefully I didn't get banned from Facebook this week for something I said because probably said some angry stuff that'll piss off some people. But um, I'm always open to the other side of the opinion, right? I've got a good friend I'm debating with right now on the Israel stuff, and he's bringing some stuff to light to some stuff to light in my mind of like mm, maybe I do need to reconsider certain parts of this Israeli conflict, right? I don't think you're going to be able to convince me on the fat thing. Um, and I don't think you're going to be able to convince me different on the housing thing, but hey, my opinion has changed on crazier things before. So uh, stay in touch, subscribe so you can catch our new videos, and we appreciate you. We'll drop a new video every week. Talk soon.